The great thing about being in Australia was it was a great school of learning for us. And we hold that very precious as part of our lives. Um, we wouldn't want it any, any different. We spent time in Brisbane uh, and we lived in Sydney. And the great um, experiences that we learned from people like Australian artists like Carl Joy and Johnny O'Keefe and, and uh, managers like Kevin Jacobson were very instrumental in, in bringing the Bee Gees to the, to the front in Australia before we left. Uh, but we went as far as we could there as kids because we were still quite young. But those were very um, important days for us, and, uh, and which I don't think we could have achieved uh, anything in our lives without that, that time in Australia. Hello, and welcome back to Words, the Bee Gees podcast. I'm Cristiano. And I'm Stuart. And we're here for the last part in our journey through the Bee Gees Australian years. And it's been a bit of a long and winding journey, hasn't it? And things don't get any less confusing for this final chapter. As we're going through, chronologically, the second half of 1966, it made quite a lot of sense to split 1966 in half. You have the first half of the year in which the Bee Gees are recording their own material, mm. the contents of Spicks and Specks, and then all of the other songs that we went through. And the second half is very interesting. We're getting a lot of covers of other artists' work, but also other artists covering new Bee Gees material. There's a lot of compositions with Morris, say solo, he's working with Nat Kipner as the two of them. And then there's about 12, 14 songs where the Bee Gees are singing cover versions. Listening through it, I seem to think they've categorised Barry as a sort of Michael Bublé type mm. singer. I know there's one or two things, uh, comments I'd like to make as we go through them. But even on a song like Somewhere, we've got Robin singing it. But then I've also read an interview somewhere where Barry claims that he sang it as well, but it's been lost. And then what we're going to do at the end of the episode to round up these past four episodes, we've both compiled our own ultimate 12-track compilation album of Australian material. Greatest non-hits, is it, from 58 <laughs> to 66? <laughs> the greatest hits that never were. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit difficult, that, because I was struggling with 12 tracks. I managed to do 12, and then I would sort of do a cheat, because Bee Gees first had 14, but I've kept it to 12. These songs could be compiled together, and I'm sure that they would come to about 35 minutes. Yeah. So we could do 14. When I was compiling this together, I was just thinking of somebody else who, like myself one year ago... I hadn't heard any of their Australian material. So I was trying to think, well, if I was going to recommend this past... Do a playlist. Yeah, eight years of music, condense it into 12 songs. And this is this would be what I think is the, the cream of the crop. We start proceedings in July with two songs, which would form the A-side and the B-side for Bip Addison, who was a pop singer from Sydney. This session continues with Colin Peterson on drums, and notably with Morris covering a lot of musical ground, vocals, piano, bass, 12-string guitar, maracas, harmonica, and also composition credits. And these two songs are Hey on the A-side, and the B-side, Young Man's Fancy. Hey, I'm a little 
This is the first of a number of compositions with Morris and Nat Kipner. And it's quite interesting, actually, that they put all these compositions onto a new label. It was called Down Under, and I think it had a boomerang <laughs> on the sleeve. And this was formed by Ozzy Byrne and Nat Kipner. And I think the idea was that they, all the songs that they recorded in the studio with different artists, they was able to put it onto this one record label. But looking at a bit of research, I think it did about 13 singles or something, so 26 tracks. I haven't got a lot to say about this single. It's it's quite a bluesy Rolling Stones influence on it with the harmonica. Mm. I think they were just learning the skills. Again, Morris still only 16. And I believe um, the guy that recorded Bip was only 16 as well. In some parts, I think that Addison's voice nicely complements Morris's style. Yeah. I say Morris's style, but it's difficult to know what comes from Morris and what comes from Kipner. But on this one as well, we've also got Barry plays guitar and obviously you mentioned Colin Peterson. And then when we get to the B-side, that features all three of the brothers on backing vocals with Morris on the guitar. What do you think to the B-side? Similar to the A-side, I think it's fairly unremarkable. The best part of both Hay and Young Man's Fancy is the middle eight, which repeats twice in both songs. I think Young Man's Fancy has a pleasant melody, and I do like Addison's voice more than a lot of the artists who would cover the Bee Gees music in the early 60s. Well, probably being Morris's age, you, he probably, they probably had similar taste in music. I think, again, it's got quite a pedestrian production Mm -hmm. it just needs something to elevate it and and take it to the next level but i assume that they had a limited budget on what they was working with it's nice having the collection but nothing i would put on repeat play too much The next A-side, B-side single that we have is from Sandy Summers, and this was released in August, and this was the A-side, Messing Around, and the B-side, A Girl Needs to Love. The A-side, Messing Around, is a Morris and Nat Kipner composition, whereas the B-side is Barry. You're talking about a month different, but I think there is a vast improvement in the composition. But sound-wise, I think we're still stuck in 64 and 65. Definitely. I think that there's a few of these later 66 recordings that just go... Although they're coming to the end of their time in Australia, they're going way back to the sounds of 64, 63. And Messing Around really reminds me of those 63, 64 recordings. 
And she wasn't messing around for long, was she? Because it's only lasts about one minute 40. <laughs> but it is good to hear the brothers clearly on backing vocals, which we thought was missing from the 64 recordings. Here, it's nice to have the brothers. And I think this is another first because it's Morris's first composition written for the female voice. I think it is. And it's quite in- interesting that uh, um, she was obviously a friend of Morris's because this is the A side. And then we've got the B side. Uh, is it A Girl Needs to Love? Yeah. And that's composed by Barry. Well, again, like the last episode when we saw a few singles that had Barry relegated to the B side, it shows how much Morris and Robin have progressed. Yeah. What do you think to the B-side? Stronger than the A-side. I agree. This has the makings of a very good Barry ballad. There are parts of it where I can hear something really good. Around, I think, 1 minute 46, there's a Beatlesque moment when they say, you know that it's true. And then later on, when it happens to you, is very sort of with the Beatles types of harmonies. But I really like some of the call and response we get with the backing vocals with the brothers. I think it is a really nice composition, but it's maybe just lacking that extra something to take it to the next level. I'm looking through uh, Joseph's notes here, and he really likes this. He's got uh, A Girl Needs to Love is an excellent ballad by Barry, with a melody he thinks is very similar to words, and the trademark Morris and Barry instrumental sound. It sounds like a Bee Gees recording off the Spicks and Specs album. And there's a beautiful little moment in the song at 1 minutes 50 when we just have the Gibbs harmonies with the instrumental break. I think it's a nice little inspired moment. It's definitely an improvement on the last. But then we're talking about Barry here, who's who's a seasoned composer. And it goes back to what we said quite a few times, that he is excellent at, at uh, interpreting songs for women to sing. Come into my parlour, sit around and talk to me. Just settle back, relax, have a cup of tea Loosen your tie, take off your shoes Go on and get rid of those worrying blues And just talk, 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 talk to me So with that, shall we go on to the next one I've got By a singer called Anne Shelton Yes, and before we continue, I have to clear up a bit of confusion. So I was trying to do some research into Shelton, 
And it kept coming up with Anne Shelton, who was prominent during the 1940s and worked with the likes of Vera Lynn. This is not the same Anne Shelton, but there is very little documented about this Anne Shelton. And I think with a lot of these artists, because they didn't really remain in the industry beyond the 1960s. But yes, we have the Morris and Nat composition, Talk To Me, which has a laid back, loungy feel. And again, similar to what we had with Messing Around. I think it's because of the types of singers who are receiving these songs, but the compositions don't feel as progressive for 1966 as, say, all of the compositions we spoke about in the previous episode. It amuses me, this one, because Talk To Me, I mean, she sings it sort of really moody. Well, that's the impression I got. And she's saying Talk To Me, but I've got my doubts on that one. I mean, if you listen, it's Come Into My Parlour. Relax, have a cup of tea, undo your tie, take off your shoes. And she just wants to talk. <laughs> <laughs> it just made me smile, that one. and um, A bit too risque for 66. Yeah. But yeah, like you, I think it the old feel of it is very laid back, um, loungy. And it got me wondering, when the brothers are presented with a singer like Shelton... I get the impression that they have a tendency to revert back to the very traditional cabaret musical style of songwriting. And and when they came across Shelton, if they knew any of her other work, they might have just thought, oh, okay, this is the type of music she should sing. We know this music quite well, so let's just make something again of that type. Yeah, so she'll talk to them. <laughs> talk, talk me, talk, talk, just talk, talk me, talk, talk, just talk. Next up, we have two songs which are produced for April Byron, which will form the A and B side of her single, released in October. Like the single for Sandy Summers, this has a Morris and Nat composition on the A side, and a Barry composition on the B side. Also, this session has a few different names in the personnel, with Russell Barnsley on drums, Michael Cuprati on guitar, John Jones on bass, and Dennis Wilson on guitar. Although not the Dennis Wilson. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, what do you think of her A side song, He's a Thief? not bad best thing i could say about it the brothers are on the backing vocals yeah same thoughts as the past few singles another very interesting middle eight and i think that proves that morris and nat definitely know how to structure a song but again like the previous single the b-side a long time ago is composed by barry yep i'm afraid to say you can hear the difference in quality me 
I think this song is probably one of the best up to now. Uh, these ones we're just discussing on this podcast. Yep. It's a, one of the better ones so far. And I think it's one that Barbara Streisand could have tackled. I think this is quite indicative of later Barry Gibb songs. I was listening to it and I was thinking this is quite a long and winding composition, kind of reminiscent yeah. of his later 80s work. Another fantastic middle eight, the part where it goes, everybody laughed when he walked away. That's it. That's really, really good, really powerful. And I think that all helps to add a lot more power to the final chorus. This is a really strong song. Joseph always goes to comment on this one that a long time ago has a similar drum pattern to I Am The World. As we said before, I'm not particularly great on noticing things like that, but um, and probably, to be honest, I don't think I've played it enough times to notice. Because I played all of these songs in the past few months and then had a bit of a break, then revisited all the 66 stuff, and it was very telling to me which songs I was playing and kind of was able to sing along to and which other songs I still needed to listen to quite a few times and a long time ago was one of the songs that I had forgotten about but when it came back on I, I knew it straight away and, and thought yeah this is this is a good one yeah it, it deserves a CD release at least okay we come to our next one which is by a group called the Mystics they did another Nat and Morris composition called Don't You Go I Need Your Love Don't you go, I need your love Don't you go, I need your love Don't you go, I need your love Need your love Comes the dawn, I lie awake Dreaming thoughts of you But I hope that all my thoughts Now, according to Decades Book, this group had a one-off contract as a result of winning a best band competition. Lead singer Ron Watford remembers Morris's ability to notice little details. He remembers Morris telling him that the guitar G-string was flat from behind the recording console. This song was released as the A-side to their single in September 1966. I've not listened to any other songs by The Mystics, And I don't know whether it's part and parcel of their modus operandi as a band going with their name Mystics. But this song, Don't You Go, I Need Your Love, has a very mid-60s sounding feel to it with the mysticism flavour and the arrangement. The guitar riff is made to sound like a sitar. I I don't know if that's just Mystics, so mysticism has to be together. I think it's helped by a driving beat. Unfortunately, I've got to say, I, I just find it sung by an average singer. Yeah, and a guitar riff that reminded me a lot of the Beatles' Every Little Thing. When I'm walking beside her People tell me I'm lucky spot on that one I hadn't, I hadn't seen that but yeah another okay composition 
The next song we have is a Barry composition and it's called Long Life and this was recorded by a Melbourne band called The Twilights and it appeared on their self-titled album. John Bywater, who was the bass guitarist for The Twilights, recalls that this was a song that Barry wrote specifically for them as opposed to it being a composition that was given to them that the Bee Gees had as a, an extra. Maybe you tell me think this is an excellent composition i've got a bit of history on this one because probably back in the 90s no 2000s and i was trying to collect all the bg's compositions i couldn't find this one anywhere and then i was going through ebay and i saw the album i don't know three or four pound or something and it was on the music for pleasure label well in the in the uk that is known for all the I think I've mentioned before, songs by other artists and things, and you'd find them in supermarkets, Music for Pleasure albums. Looking on the sleeve notes, it was produced by Dave Mackay, which went on to work with Barry with the Bunburys. Yes. And also in the group was a sing- was Terry Britton. He went on to compose songs for Tina Turner, I Don't Want to Be Another Hero. And he also com- did a song with Hall & Oates as well called Bad Habits, Give Up Bad Habits. One of their best. Yeah, it's, that is a brilliant song. But yeah, a really, really... Strong composition. As I say, I've got the album, but I don't know whether I've ever listened to it all through. I think I just obviously wanted it for the uh, for this particularly one song. Right, and for our next record, I've just got to have you all prepared. Classic warning. (laughs) Our next song is called In Your World, and it is recorded by eight-year-old Laurie Barmer, who would go on in a couple of years' time to record a couple more Bee Gees um, songs. Four Faces West. Yep. And what was the other one? Treacle Brown. I'd forgotten that one. How could you forget? (laughs) (laughs) Which, if you'd like to hear our thoughts on them, you can listen to our Odessa episode in which we rave about those two songs. And any different thoughts on In Your World? Before I start on In Your World, the A-side was um, Who's Been Writing on the Wall? I don't know if you've listened to it, but it is slightly different. I assume she just changed the name, doesn't she? From, yeah. Jenny, from Jenny Bradley to Laurie? By this point, Jenny had gone on to live life on the cobbles. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
But I believe all three brothers on backing vocals on this. It goes on to prove the point that I made in the 1965 episode when we were talking about Jenny Bradley's work. The brothers really know how to write for any age group. Songs for children, they seem to be really good at them. No matter what you think of these as compositions, they are undeniably catchy and very suitable for the demographic of who the singer is and who the listeners are going to be. I'm surprised that she did Who's Been Right on the Wall, if it was a flop the first time. But yeah, in your word, it's, it's a difficult one. It's a solo Barry composition. You know, whilst this is far from being the best Gibb song of 1966, it is chirpy, it's upbeat. And I do think that the instrumental backing, if you listen to it, is identical, almost note for note, identical to The Three Kisses of Love. No, I didn't notice that, no. Kiss me once, oh yeah, baby. Kiss me twice, oh yeah, crazy. Kiss me three times. Before we go through the rest of the Gibb compositions for 1966, which were done around November, December, we'll go back and we'll look through all of the covers that the Bee Gees did of other artists' compositions. Good idea. These were recorded around June, July. Like a lot of the songs that we spoke about at the end of the last episode, it's not known why these songs were recorded, whether it was for television programmes, whether it was for an intended record or whether it was just for the Bee Gees' own pleasure, because they had the studio and they had the time. We have about 10, 12 songs to go through. Yep. Well, the first one I thought Chris would do is a song called Lonely Winter. The reason I thought this one, because this was done around the same time as Spicks and Specks album. Right. This was written by Carl Keats, and it was an exchange of compositions. So he wanted one of his compositions on a Bee Gees album, and in turn, he would sing one of their songs, Barry's Little Miss Rhythm and Blues, which is a track we talked about in 1965. And I did read that Carl went on to write songs for Status Quo, Olivia Newton-John, Ringo Starr. So he had, he had quite a productive career sort of later on. Now, going back to this song, I like this one for the reason that we do get to hear Morris on lead vocal. Now the summer has gone Had I not read up, I wouldn't have known that this was not a good composition. It sounds quite similar to the stuff that they were that is on Specs and Specs. I agree with you that Lonely Winter as a composition is quite fitting for Morris and his voice, and it all stays quite monotonous. So it's it's not demonstrating a big vocal range, but it's still very fitting. Yeah, he doesn't have to stretch himself, does he? No. And listening to Lonely Winter and then listening to these other covers that we're going to go through, I do wonder whether they were presented by, say, Ozzy Byrne or Kipner with these songs to cover, or whether it was the brothers individually picking their own favourite compositions to cover. As I say, I think this was recorded at the same time as, as the Spicks and Specs stuff. So it, was, it was prob- could, have, could have been part of the album, I don't know. So whether this one 
is slightly different and the rest of the tracks that we do get are sung to backing tracks yeah I'm lost in a daydream not too stupid for a daydreaming boy you know I'm part of a daydream and I'm my mother's little bundle of joy and all of the children in the neighborhood they say that I'm crazy but I know I'm I ain't afraid of them, I got no fears Cause I will be dreaming for a thousand years I'm part of a daydream I'm all alone in a daydream world I think this is a good cover. I think that Barry gives this a sort of R&B vibe. From what I remember, I think the original version was, was slightly slower. I think it was a hit in 66, 67. I did know this song before hearing the Bee Gees version, whereas Lonely Winter was pretty much a new song to me and a few others were as well. But Daydream, I did recognise it. I think it's since been used quite a few times in commercials, mm. maybe perfume Well, it's commercials. been sung by a few people. I think there was, I think David Cassidy did a version of it. And he's another one that sings quite a sort of breathy style as well. So, so that's what I quite like about Barry's. He's just giving it a bit of bit of extra. And I like this as a song on its own. I think this is just, this is just oh, a, it's really, a good song. It's a really good song. Yeah, I think you can see it did really well in the charts and stuff. And you, if you buy these 60s compilations, you often find it on there. I got no children and I got no fears too. And I will be dreaming for a thousand years. So is it the brothers on instruments. Yeah, I think I, I get the impression the track's already produced and they just wanted the, the voice to go. But I think it was this one, as you've mentioned quite a few times, where the, where the Bee Gees, when they're singing other people's stuff, can just go out and relax and just sing it how they interpret it to be. then got a tetralogy of Beatles compositions. We've got If I Needed Someone, Paperback Writer, Ticket to Ride, and You Won't See Me. But If I Needed Someone isn't in circulation. No. We only have the other three. I mean, they've done plenty of Beatles covers already, haven't they? Yeah. I won't go into detail on all three of these, but I did notice that on You Won't See Me, they have a variation of lyrics in the second verse. In the original, it goes... I don't know why you should want to hide. But in this version, Robin instead sings, well, I don't know why I've always lied. Oh, okay. Which, it fits the meter, but it's different lyrics. And I don't know whether that was maybe with these songs, did they have lyrics in front of them or were they just doing it off memory and therefore ad-libbing? It could be. 
I think they're complimentary, actually. I think Ticket to Ride, I've put another faithful interpretation. It's one of my favourite Beatles songs. Yeah, same for me. I know it, it sounds a bit bizarre. I don't know whether you think this, but the Bee Gees sound more like the Beatles when they do their own compositions. Yeah, I know what you mean. Do you know what I, what I mean? We, these songs we said sound very Beatly, whereas this one that just sounds like a singer covering a Beatles song. It sounds very plasticky. Yeah. Whereas you get a composition, as we said, like Bad Bad Dreams, which sounds just like the Beatles. Yeah, I know what you mean. But whether it's because we're all, everybody's just so familiar with all the originals, they're ingrained on you, aren't they? Are there any covers of Beatles songs that you maybe prefer to the Beatles originals? Yes, there is. There is a fantastic version of Peculiar Clark doing I Want to Hold Your Hand. Turns it completely around. It's it's slow. Every, and, and when I hear that one, I think, wow, you, you know, I had to t- take a little poppy song and change it, tempo and everything. Now, to interpret it that way, if we're talking about sort of 60s stuff, then that's my favourite. So listening to these Beatles covers, I assume they were probably all recorded at the same session because they've all got that similar feel. And in the Decades book... Dennis Wilson, the guitarist, recalls hearing the Bee Gees version only two days after the Beatles single had come out. With all of these covers that we're talking about and how quickly they were after the release of those Beatles songs, within a matter of days, they were recording their own versions. I can then see how gratifying it must have been come the 1990s and going through to the present day for Barry to see all these other artists covering his work when he was covering all of the other artists' work in the 60s. The Bee Gees got a lot of slack in the early 80s. But then you sort of get, in the 90s, you've got these younger groups starting to sing their stuff. I think Boy's Own, I think I mentioned before, Boy's Own had a hit with words, mid-90s. Steps covered tragedy. Wasn't it the musical for Staying Alive? That's when they, they became a bit like ABBA, have had the same thing as well. In the 80s, they were just a pop group, you know, nothing. But it, it weren't until like the 90s. I think Erasure did a, a four-EP Abaresque or something. Again, then Abba starts getting back in. Then you know, actually, they were really good. You're the thing that I do You're the reason I'm living I'd be lost without you Well, this one is a Bobby Darren song. I've not heard the original. But I think this song really suits Barry's voice. Listen to his voice. If you could isolate his voice and take away the choir in the background or whatever you can hear the versatility in his vocal i still can't get my head around that this is barry in 66 it's a really really good vocal from him. very confident it's fantastic i love you most of all because you're you 
No matter what the world may say about me I know your love will always see me through I love you for the way Next we have I Love You Because, which is a Leon Payne composition. And listening to this, I can start to hear the types of songs such as I'll Kiss Your Memory, with influence from songs such as this. This is quite a country-flavoured song. I mean, it was originally done by Jim Reeves, who had a top five hit with it in 64. And ten years prior to that, it was covered by Elvis Presley, one of his early recordings. Again, I think Mr Versatile's back again with another cracking vocal performance. I mean, Barry could sing the words, no pun intended, from a recipe book. <laughs> and it'd and it, 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 it make it sound good. Had you heard the song before, before this podcast? You never heard it? No, this one and a few of the other ones we're about to talk about shortly. But listening to them within the first 20 seconds, I did think, yeah, this is clearly one of those staple songbook songs. This is a, this is a singer's song, if you get what I mean. And this one, I think with the arrangement that it's got, it could quite easily be a Christmas record. Yeah, very Christmassy. I think I've got the Carpenter's Christmas album. And they use very, very similar arrangements to this. Was that their own material? I think there's Merry Christmas Darling, which is about their own thing. And the rest of it was all, were all cover versions. But yeah, quite easy. I could hear this. Just need a few sleigh bells. And... Yeah. But most of all, I love you. Cause you're you. So that then brings us on to the next, which is Ray Charles's Hallelujah, I Love Her So. Let me tell you about a girl I know. She's my baby and she lives next door. Every morning when the sun comes up. She brings me coffee in my favorite cup That's why I know, that's why I know Hallelujah, I just love you so She brings me coffee when I'm all alone She makes me comfortable when I'm home And in the evening when the sun goes down When there ain't nobody else around That's why I know, that's why I know Hallelujah, I just love you so It could be pure coincidence, but I think there is something to say that Barry is singing these songs, Hallelujah, I Love Her So, You're the Reason I'm Living, etc. You know, very plaintive love ballads when he would then get married on the 22nd of August, 1966. So whether that romance was just on his mind throughout these middle months of 66. And when these were recorded... I don't think, well, Spicks and Specks have already, that would have been released yet, would it? No, that's not till November. So this goes on to what I was saying on the previous podcast, is that either the management record label didn't quite know where the group were going. They, I think they had big things for Barry. For a record producer, he ticks every box. Ticks, he ticks every box, yeah. So it was quite easy for them to, right, off you go, we want you to record these set of songs and... Yeah. Um, Again, whether, as we say, whether it's for a show, whether they were going to push them out to different people. 
But it's just amazing that they got lost until this this album came out in this Inception album came out in 1970. So after a bit of Hallelujah, which I've got to say I, I do like, yeah, same. We'll go on to somewhere. Somewhere. Somewhere a time for us Hold my hand and we're halfway there Hold my hand and I'll take you there Someday, somehow We'll find a new way of living We'll find a way Well, we have Bernstein and Sondheim, so we immediately know that this is a, a good composition. It's one of my favourite um, compositions, actually, particularly the Barbara Streisand version. She just knocks it out of the park. But saying that, we get a young Robin on this one. And he does a fine job. Yeah, but he's, he's in, have you noticed him with his lower register again? Yeah, whether that's just Robin going into default ballad crooner mode. And do you think he was influenced by Barry? Yeah. I don't know whether that type of voice comes naturally to Robin, because he doesn't really revisit it much beyond 1966. No. He finds his own style, which is so unique and beautiful that, yeah, this this type of singing works for these sorts of songs, but I can understand why he might have abandoned it later on. This song, I, I assume, is for musical theatre and... Yeah. Though it was a hit, I think, for PJ Proby in about 1965, and he sings it quite deep as well. So whether Robin was trying to mimic or imitate that I don't know the next one I have is the 12th and ever I'll need you must I explain I need you like the roses need falling This is a Webster and Livingston composition. Were you familiar with this before hearing the Bee Gees version? Well, the first time I remember hearing this song was not by... Barry, but it's back in 73. This was a number one hit for Donny Osmond. I know that you always tune into Radio 2's Pop Master, so we'll do our own little Pop Master now. Yeah. So I've taken the week of the charts from the 25th of March to the 31st of March 1973. Right, we'll do a top five. So Donny Osmond, 12th of Never, is number one. If I give you the artist, could you give me the single? Go on then. Yeah. So number go. five, we've got T Rex. It's 73, so it's either The Groover or is it uh, 20th Century Boy? Yep. At number four, Cliff Richard, who actually was one of the first to cover the 12th of Never. Yeah, oh, okay. So a bit, bit of a... Um, He's in at number four. Do you know the song? From 73, Power to All Our Friends. Correct. That's from the Eurovision Song Contest. Number three, Gilbert O'Sullivan. Get Down. Yep. Number two, Slade. Squeeze me, please me. No. Come on, feel the noise. Yeah. Yeah. Right, let's do that. Number six was 
Detroit Emeralds. No, I don't know that one. That's Feel the Need in Me. Oh, okay. That's a Baker's song, isn't it? <laughs> uh, number seven, Dawn featuring Tony Orlando. Tie Yellow Ribbon? Yep. Number eight, David Cassidy. This must be a double A side. Uh, didn't we have a kind of summer or something, was it? Some kind of summer with I'm a Clown. Okay. Number nine, Roberta Flack. No, don't know. Killing Me Softly with a song. Oh, and then number dear. ten was Shirley Bassey. Shirley Bassey? Yeah. Not a clue. Never, never, never. But I think that going back to the top of Never, again, very much a ballads type of ballad. <laughs> if, if you can say that, a, a crooner's type of ballad, I should say. Well, I've got another great Barry vocal, but this time I've, I've found it more restrained. Because that's what the song probably suits better than, than All Out. And next up, we have your nobody till somebody loves you. But God can bring you a happiness when you're growing old. The world still is the same. You'll never change it. Just as sure as the sun shines Beginning to sound like a repeat record here, actually, but Barry puts in again another really stellar performance. It's a pity we get to hear all these songs with with big production after hearing all those other songs from the second half of '66 that were so poor. Yeah, well, I think they I would say they were sort of what well produced demos, really. That's one thing good about this Australian period. You you get to hear all these songs that had they not been there, these probably would never have been touched, would they? And it does make me wonder that if they'd remained in the UK, what would their music trajectory have been like? After Tin Can? No, as in, if they'd never have moved to Australia. So would their first worldwide album have still been released in 67? Or could it have been released earlier? Well, if they're, if they're from Manchester and the Isle of Man, that's only a stone's throw from Liverpool, where obviously Mersey Beat originated from. Yeah. Groups like the Hollies, you had the Mindbenders from Manchester... So there was there was a lot going on in that side of the country. I think their career might have taken off quicker because, as we we mentioned, them sixty four recordings, a lot of them could have been given to more famous artists who would have covered him. His name would have got recognised a lot quicker through publishers and different people. And Brian Epstein would have been the right person to um, give him the limelight. Yeah, they were Freddie and the Dreamers, Jerry and the Pacemakers, and quite a few of the others sort of came and went quite quickly. So in hindsight, whether it's better they were where they were... It kept them away from that. Exactly. So they could come into 1967 fresh. Because if not, it could have just been Barry Gibbon, the Bee Gees. Yeah, and they could have come and gone. Whereas stay in Australia, let that all fizzle out, come in 67, there's a, there's a change in the musical scene, and away they go. The music really fits in with what was going on. I think that those years in Australia, whether you like the music or don't like the music... You have to kind of just see it as a 
a training ground for them. Sort of doing their apprenticeship, weren't yeah. they? Yeah, exactly. Find yourself somebody to love. And we now come to the last of these covers, and it's the rather fittingly titled The End, which is a Jacobson and Kronz composition. At the end of the rain You'll find a cart of gold At the end of a story You'll find it's all been sold And our love has a treasure Our hearts can only spin And our love has a story Without any end At the end of a river the water stops its flow well i'd never heard this song before it was completely new to me and if i happened to if somebody put it on the radio now and i heard that i would have thought that was a barry composition yeah it is really good it's probably one of my favorites of these um bunch of songs and what's particularly great about this is there's a part of it where, where Barry's voice really goes from And Our Love part. He, he takes this to a new level. Out of all these, it's the goosebump moment for me. Um, and it's worth the admission fee alone of these collections, that part of the song. Well, after going through all that, um, Chris, shall we now go back and finish off the remainder of these songs that they gave to other people? Yep. I think there's about seven or eight of them that we've got to go through. And the first one I've got is by a singer uh, I've never even heard of called Barrington Davis. For his A-side, a track called As Fast As I Can, and on the B-side is Raining Teardrops. These are both written and composed by Morris and Nat. It was done... I assume sort of towards the end of 66, so just before they they came over to the UK. But it wasn't released until a single until June 1967. I've got all of these songs, these remaining songs, as being anywhere between November, December of 66. Yeah. side as fast as i can is a moody smoky composition and the low register of davis's voice i think is a very suitable fit for the type of compositions that that morris creates and as we were saying about when morris sang lonely winter i'm sort of seeing that with how davis is performing these two songs i think it gives us a good idea as to how as fast as i can could have sounded if morris was performing it himself yeah i think it's good that morris is trying out different genres of music styles. He might as well try it on with other people. 
as opposed to with the Bee Gees. And then obviously when he comes back into the group, he can then be more flexible and versatile with his own. Yeah, I've got a lot to say about this one. It's pretty much similar to what you've said, quite a moody piece, but I much prefer the B-side. I think that could be your catchphrase for this I episode. I think it is. It much prefer the B-side. Because yeah. I think this one is a better song and it's got a more memorable chorus. And on Raining Teardrops, Davis sounds even more like Morris. Yeah, this is a strong composition. It could have appeared on Spicks and Specks, and the driving guitar lick and the strong rhythm with a good instrumental break, it would just be great to hear a version with the Gibbs on vocals. Yeah. Unfortunately, like all these others, it uh, um, it wasn't a hit, but it did earn some airplay on Sydney Radio. That's good. I'm wondering whether it got some airplay on Sydney Radio because of the name Gibb. By that point, they'd yeah. gone to the UK. They'd had chart success. Yeah. And it would be quite good as a DJ to say, we have a song co-composed by Morris Gibb. And that giving it a bit of extra boost. Impetus. Yeah, as opposed if it was released while they was travelling over to the UK. You might have noticed it as well. There's a lot of songs from 66, 65, and I think maybe even 64, that didn't see a release until 67. And I'd never quite join the dots until you just said it then. Of course, they would have been released in 67, because by that point, the Gibbs would have become a household name. Once they've had the hit, it was a rush release to see what how much material they can people can get hold of. I would like to now go back and look at the chart performance of Bee Gees First and Horizontal in Australia. Yeah, just to see how they did. I've just taken a look, and because the Australian charts were still quite segmented, it wasn't until what became known as the Kent Music Report started in 1974, which was a music enthusiast's compilation of the singles to try and get, I think, like an overall billboard style of charts. And so, with that, Bee Gees First comes in at number 10. Okay. So, already, going over to the UK, recording and releasing that, it did far better in Australia than the past four or five years of their work combined. We then get two songs recorded by Janine Watson... These were released as a single in March 1967. Joseph Brennan questions whether the Gibbs have any instrumental or backing contribution to these songs, as the arrangement and sound of these two songs is notably different to their other recordings in 66, and actually listening to both So Long Boy and Don't Say No, which are the two songs, I have to agree, they they sound very, very different. And So Long Boy, the A-side, is Morris and Nat, and... As you might expect, the B-side, Don't Say No, is a Barry composition. So long, boy, 
And, and this is going to be a first for me. I don't think the B side is better than the A side. <laughs> I, I think they're on par. I'm probably going back to Frontier, but I think Don't Say No, the B side, I think this would is not far off from being like a James Bond theme. it needs is somebody like Shirley Bassey to put her own interpretation on it but saying that I think Jenny does an excellent job with a powerful vocal and I think the song sort of needs it or demands it but with both Don't Say No and the A-side So Long Boy it goes back to what I said at the beginning of this episode with a couple of the songs where it just sounds like because of the type of singer who's performing this it feels like we've gone back to a, a composition from 65 or 64 these don't sound as progressive as the contents of Spicks and Spec. Then if we go to the A-side, Salon Boy, I've put, is Morris now going into cabaret mode? Exactly the same as me. Very cabaret, theatrical, fairly unremarkable. I agree with Brennan. It sounds very different. With a song like So Long Boy, without the context of any of this, it would be so difficult to ever guess that a, a song like this was written by a BG. And I guess that's a testament to the Gibbs quality and their talent of writing music that's so varied. And I think by all accounts, from what we've heard of any of these artists from Australia, and also from later in their career, there's never an artist who has a bad word to say about recording with the Gibbs in the studio. They always compliment them, say how friendly they are, how how good they are at helping to guide the artist through how to record, how to sing, how to perform. Even if the song itself might not be top quality, just to have that experience with them in the studio is worth more than getting a top charting single. Yeah, and what I would say as well, that these songs that we've just discussed sound nothing like what the Bee Gees were doing for themselves. That is until I think we come to the next one. Upstairs, Downstairs. Upstairs Downstairs is a BRM composition and it's performed by John Blanchfield, otherwise just known as John. And he was an Australian TV personality and singer. And these songs were released as a single in February 1967. So that's Upstairs Downstairs, Town of Tuckley Toymaker. And it's very similar to what I said about Like Nobody Else, except I think this is a better song. I have a lot to say about Upstairs Downstairs. I think that the song has a very strong 
metaphorical subject matter with the idea of a divided love compared to being upstairs and downstairs in a house. So you've got the division of a house being upstairs and downstairs compared to the division in a relationship. And again, you can apply that to being upstairs, high society, being downstairs, being lower in society. That works really well. But I think the song could go further with the metaphor. She is upstairs, I am downstairs. That is the chorus. And I just think it would be nice to know a bit more. Why is she upstairs and why is he downstairs? Is she of a higher place in society? What's happened in their relationship for this to happen? Had an argument, she's gone to bed. It could just be that. (laughs) (laughs) And I find that the the chorus rhyming is very weak. Stairs is rhymed with itself about three times. She is upstairs, I am downstairs. Don't she know I need her downstairs? What the hell is she doing upstairs? I find that pretty weak. Which is surprising considering this is a three-way composition. And it's got such a strong basis to it that I think if this would have just been... If more could have been done to the chorus, this could have been a really, really good song. Well, it actually did reach number 32 in the state of Queensland. It's very commercial. And would you put this in the songs that we've said before, like All the King's Horses... Certainly the B-side. I'm not sure about Upstairs, Downstairs, but it's kind of in that same flavour. Looking at Joseph's notes, he goes on to comment about um, John. He says that he thought they wrote the fast-paced Upstairs, Downstairs specifically for him. It's surprising that in 1966 no one asked them to change the lyric. What the hell to something more acceptable for the radio. Judging by the way John sings, he thinks Barry sang lead on the A side and Robin on the B side. Town of Tuxley Tourmaker Part 1 is the first in a series of songs featuring bizarre Robin lyrics set for good measure to a melody inspired by Matchmaker from Fiddler on the Roof. By the time John's single appeared, the Bee Gees were in England recording another version of it with Billy J. Kramer. So this is a track that I think is very much a precursor to Bee Gees first. It's steeped in psychedelia, but it is drawn back to 1966 and their Australian compositions with fairly generic, uninspired lyrics such as make a girl for every boy, make a man for every wife. And I think like Upstairs Downstairs, more could have been done to develop the world of this toy maker. Yeah. There is something very good there, something very haunting. It's kind of similar to Jingle Jangle, which is why I do agree with Brennan in that I would picture this as being a Robin composition, because this is BRM as well. But a great moment is on the line, 
live an everlasting life where the mood shifts and the plucking guitar makes us feel like we are moving in or out of a dream perhaps from where the toy maker lives to the reality I have listened to Billy J. Kramer's version from 67. I think it's more developed. The only thing I can't get over, I don't know whether his voice matches the song. I'm still used to him singing, Do You Want to Know a Secret, Little Children. I think what gives it a more fuller production is that we've got the the brothers on backing vocals on this. And actually, Chris, I don't really know, but this was the first recording they did in England. Going back to your train of thought from beforehand, I do think that Town of Tuxley Toymaker sits in that same type of song as Gilbert Green. Yeah. Again, it's that flavour of composition. I think it was just the mindset that they were in late 1966. Yeah, it'd be nice to hear a demo of them singing it. Definitely, and if it's got Robin on lead, definitely. I'll be so lonely without you Biding my time Loving you, lady Driving me crazy Watching the trains go by Loving you, lady You ain't seen the last of me The next composition is from an unknown recording date, but presumably it's from around November and December of 66. And this was recorded by Johnny Young, released in July 1967 as the A-side to his single. And the song is called Lady, and it's a Barry composition. And just a fun fact, this was released on my sixth birthday. Did you get this as a present? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) For my sixth birthday, I got my first record player. Is this the one that automatically changes? It's the one where you, it's a mono. You lift, you lift. You used to lift the lid up, and then you could put your six whatever singles on top of one another. I think that's probably why I lost all the sleeves to all my singles because you take them out, then you put them on the um, on the spindle in the middle, and then the, once the needle reached the end of the record, it come back, and, and a single would drop on top of the other one. But what happened to the previous single? Where did that go? It used to go across, then drop down. Oh, so it wasn't on a slip mat. It was just going onto the previous record. It, it, it's yeah, going to the previous record, and then and then obviously the needle would go across, then just drop down onto it. Then when you finished it, lift it. No, it automatically lift up, come back. The needle would come back out. The record would drop, and then it would go back across. And then you get probably if you put quite a few on top of one, and you probably find towards the end the last single would start slipping. Because obviously it's sitting on about four or five other singles, and I suppose you can see then why you, they got quite scratched quite easily. But yeah, so that, that was that was what I got got then. I had it for a good ten years until I got my first music centre. So back back to this song. This is my favourite by far of any Bee Gees record given away in '66. In fact, it's probably one of my top ones they've given away full stop in the '60s. Yeah, this is really really good. It goes back at you. Have you listened to Pet Sounds? The backing. Yeah, so I've got the first line of my notes is that this is a Bacharach 
baroque flavoured composition. And I think that it's got a lovely melody. Given different lyrics again, I, I could put this down as a Lost Bee Gees Christmas single. This song was composed specially for Johnny Young by Barry. It was following Young's offer to pay for Barry's return airfare to Sydney from Melbourne for a TV appearance. Barry returned the favour and then gave Johnny this song and it was a top 30 hit in, in Australia. So I can see why actually. And it was released again by a Canadian band called Major Hoople's Boarding House. I think that goes up there with Rupert's World. Yeah. <laughs> I love the ending coda to this song when it says, You ain't seen the last of me, I'll be around till eternity. And the way that that keeps repeating in quite a cyclic nature with the changing keys like a circle of fifths. I think it's such an inspired closing to the song. And again, it's one of those little pieces of melodies that you hear and you think, I've known that all of my life. But it's not. It's just Barry's knack for writing music that feels like it's always existed. I don't know whether I would have put this on Bee Gees first. Don't know where it would fit in the Bee Gees canon. But as far as a giveaway song, I think it's it's top notch. It might not fit on Bee Gees first, but I'm still having this thing now where I'm thinking there's a Bee Gees album from early 67, late 66 that never was. And that's this Baroque album that's got Gilbert Green, Town of Tuckley Toymaker... Lady, House of Lords. You, you could have an album of that type and this would be on there. When I was doing my top 12, this was in the running for, to being on that album because you told me I couldn't have 14. <laughs> no, we had to keep it to 12. And after that one, we now come to the, I think, is it the final song of that we're going to cover of the Australian years? This is the fourth composition that Barry gave to Nolene Batley and it was released as a B-side in 1967 in September. you first what's your first impressions really well produced i don't know whether it's just the copy that you have that sounds really good but in comparison to a lot of these songs high res yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's nolene batley so we know the type of song that we're getting here and it's not really much different to the three previous songs that she was given clearly though she must have really liked working with the gibbs or they liked writing for her because she must be one of the most prolific of the artists who received music from the Australian era. Yeah, I agree with you, Chris. It's in a similar vein to the others, except I think with this later version, she's got rid of her backing singers. Because I think they were sort of on, was it Surfer Boy? Yeah, Surfer Boy. That's the positive thing about this song. I think she sings it well, but I've not got a lot else to say on it, to be honest with you. No, it, it seems quite bittersweet now we've reached 
the last of these songs. I still need to tally it up because we must be at around composition number 150. So I think that just leaves us a few compositions that uh, that were done in 66. We had Gilbert Green, which was covered by Jerry Marsden in 67. Luckily, we do have a Bee Gees version. Since the 2006 reissue, we've got a studio version. And then the other one I've got is Don't Forget Me Ida. We've got a Bee Gees version from 1970, wasn't it? 70, Yeah, we spoke about it. It was in Two Years On or Trafalgar. Yeah. And it was released as an A-side for Johnny Ashcroft in 1967. I think that with Don't Forget Me Ida, going back to what we said about it a few episodes ago, it is one of my favourite of these 66 compositions. I really do like that song. And it's very sad that it never got a proper release by them later on, because I think that of all of these songs, Don't Forget Me Ida would have suited their style in the early 70s. And I think it's a really lost classic. But yeah, that, that's, a, that's a fantastic song. And, and it's, it's fascinating to know that it started life in Australia. When I first got the bootleg, I, I didn't know that it was an Australian recording. I just thought it was one that they, they wrote for um, Trafalgar or Two Years On. Yeah. So with that then, shall we go into our fictitious... Yes. ...album? So what we've decided to do, we've gone through all these recordings that we have, that we've gone through from 58 to 66. What Chris thought was, we'd try and compose an album and do it in the way that we're going to give it to somebody and say, well, these are the recordings they did in 60, in this period of time. Present it as like a best of... So with that in mind, which way have you gone with this one then? We, we decided on, well, you've decided on six, six songs each side. When I was compiling it, part of me wanted to do it chronologically because that felt appropriate. I haven't stuck to that rule, but I do have quite a few on side one that are from the earlier years. You said that this is a best of. It's a combination of what I think is objectively the best material, but there's a few of my own personal favourites yeah. in there. So I've started things on side one with The Three Kisses of Love. Right. And then I Was a Lover, A Leader of Men, How Love Was True, Claustrophobia, Cherry Red, and then end side one with Morning of My Life. Yeah. Side two, Butterfly, Forever, Spicks and Specks, Jingle Jangle, I Am the World, Follow the Wind. There's a lot very similar to mine. I've started off with Spicks and Specks, then I've gone to How Many Birds... I've then gone in the morning, I was a lover, and then I thought I would put a song by each of the two twins. That's a good idea. So I've gone with Where Are You, then Follow the Wind, so that's side one. Side two have gone with Claustrophobia, Cherry Red, Secondhand People, How Love Was True, and then I've got I Am The World and Butterfly. But... I've got two songs that I think... One was Lady that we've just mentioned and my other one was Forever. So I just don't know what to drop to put them in. I was toying with leaving second-hand people and putting Forever on it because the second side seems to be a bit ballad-orientated, uh, but I'd have to really listen to it and then jiggle in poker around. <laughs> yeah. You went with the really early Three Kisses of Love. I needed a song that represented their beginning. I was actually really tempted to put Let Me Love You on there because I think that's such a beautiful, innocent song. I needed something that represented the early years and Three Kisses of Love does that perfectly for me. 
I then wanted side two to be a bit more wistful and nostalgic and sentimental. Hence, butterfly, I am the world, follow the wind. Yeah, you you, you could play around it for, for ages, couldn't you? But if you, if you could pick the 12, then I'm happy with these 12. Because I, I had trouble putting forever where to put it. It kind of says album closer in some senses. It just feels like a good closing piece. I mean, I've got it midway through side two. But yeah, you could, you could equally, it could have been the opener to side one or side two. I'm kind of regretting now not doing what you did. I think with 14 songs, I definitely would have tried to have put on a Morris solo or a Morris and Nat composition. And what would you call it? I was just about to ask you that. <laughs> um, morning of Our Lives. I don't think Follow the Wind would make that <laughs> album cover to you. As far as I'm concerned, Spicks and Specks. That's a good title because all of these songs, they're, they're so all over the place with all the different artists mm. that it's kind of like the Spicks and Specks of... A bit of this and a bit of that. A bit from this year, a bit from that year. Yeah, yeah, it is a good title. We had an email in from Daniel Navarro, and he says, 1966 was the best year for Bee Gees songs. Each brother had a song they could showcase their talents on. Morris had All By Myself, Lonely Winter, and Where Are You? Robin had I Am The World, The Storm, and I Don't Know Why I Bother With Myself, and Barry had Spicks and Specks. Other gems were Monday's Rain and Born A Man, I do love Robin's quickie, Lum-de-loo. Okay. <laughs> the brothers also started writing together more consistently, forming the songwriting team that would last their entire career. I agree with that last sentiment. Definitely. Well, it's great to get to other people's opinions as well, isn't it? Yeah. Daniel likes Lum-de-loo. You're not so impressed. No, no. So with that, we've reached the end of the Australian era and... I think that doing all of this has probably been, for me, my biggest personal achievement since starting the podcast. Because we were originally going to think about doing it first. And yeah. Start off with Australia. Way ways. back when I first emailed you over a list of what I thought our episodes could be. And I, I said to you, do you think we should start with Beaches first? Or should we start with... Now, this was very naive of me. I thought we could do an episode covering both Spicks and Specs and Beaches Sing and Play in one episode. Because I thought that maybe there was those two albums and a handful of extra songs. I did not realise that there was <laughs> nearly 200 songs worth of material over this eight-year period. So then when you then said, no, they, they deserve a bit more attention, that's then when we decided that we should hold back on the Australian years. And this point, having finished Life in a Tin Can, A Kick in the Head, it felt appropriate to do Australia now before we then go into Arif Mardin in the late 70s. Yeah, I thought so. It was a bit of a job to know where to, where to slot it in. Yeah. I think now is best to get this out there and done. I always thought this was going to be a really daunting task because I started listening to the Australian stuff at the beginning of 2022 and I thought I'm going to need quite a bit of preparation. We both knew that we were going to get to it by the end of the year because before doing the podcast, I was not familiar with any of the Australian music, probably only Morning of My Life. That was the only one that I knew of, and, and Spicks and Specks, and maybe Three Kisses of Love, and that was it. But I'm so glad that we've taken the time the past few months, and I've been able to talk through it all with you, and 
as always, your different opinions help me to reevaluate mine and maybe vice versa. But it's always the same. You hear a song through somebody else's ears as well and, and, and things. You think, oh, I didn't pick up on that. or I didn't notice that part. And you think somebody says that part's good. And you think, oh, I want to keen on it myself. Yeah. You start thinking, oh, well, probably there is more to this. I'll give it another listen. Even something like Forever, which I'd listened to a few times. And it wasn't until then I spoke to you and you said, you were telling me about how you thought it was a song that you knew. And then that got me to re-listen to it and think about it differently. And Jingle Jangle as well. And, and, and any of these songs... And I will continue to listen to them in the future. Whenever I'm going through all of the Bee Gees work, it will, it will now begin in Australia. Definitely start with the Spicks and Specs album, if nothing else, yeah. rather than Bee Gees First. Okay, Bee Gees First is another step up. But I wouldn't say the step's too big. No. You've got uh, Bill Shepard doing the production. You've got better studio equipment, etc. There is a step, but it's not that huge. Well, this brings us to the end of going through Australia, it also brings us to the end of season two. And I've been looking back recently on what we've been covering on season two, and I'm really quite happy with what we've done. Because I was looking back on it and I was thinking, right, so we started with two years on. So if you're going from two years on to kick in the head, and then going through the Australian years, out of all of that music, out of all of those albums, there's probably only three, maybe four songs that Joe Public would recognise. Lonely Days, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, Run To Me, and possibly either Morning Of My Life or Spicks and Specs. Apart from that, everything else is just obscure. We've had the unreleased album, A Kick In The Head. We've had all of this lost material from the Australian years. You get albums like Two Years On, or To Whom It May Concern, or Life In A Tin Can, which they just ignored after release. They were never represented live. They weren't spoken about much in documentaries. And so actually, I think looking back on season two, I think this is a really critical period for the for the Bee Gees going through the early 70s and then going back to their origins and looking ahead to season three when we're going to be going through what is commercially regarded as the golden years yeah that stuff is what's always represented in the greatest Bee Gees compilations and best of the Bee Gees etc whereas this material it requires listening because it is as good as the rest yeah definitely agree with that to close out this episode and to close out our journey through the Australian material, I'd like to leave you with some words from Robin. We mentioned before with I Am The World, where he revisited some of his Australian music yeah. later on in his life. And from the St. Catherine Drive album, there's a demo called Sydney. And I'd like to read out the lyrics from this song because I think it perfectly sums up Robin's thoughts on his time in Australia. We saw from a lot of his interviews from the 90s, the 80s, the 70s, where he was very dismissive of the Australian music, calling Timber a flop, yeah. saying that he wasn't keen on certain songs. We never really saw him get to be that favourable towards the material, but I think he was. So I'll leave you with these lyrics. All those dreams fall to the ground. Call your name, you're not around. The battle's won now. The price was high. And you're still here by my side. Come back here, Sydney. Brothers are with me, brothers and I, close my eyes. Come back here, Sydney, brothers are with me, do it or die. All those dreams fall to the ground, call your name, you're not around. The battle's won now, the price was high, I close my eyes. Come back here, Sydney, brothers are with me. Come back here, Sydney, brothers are with me. 
Oh, baby, can we not die? 